Let's pray. We got a tough one today. Dear Lord, in the hurried and busyness of life, help us for a moment to just rest in you. What a privilege it is to worship you, to give you your worth, to honor you. In these next uh, few moments, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Put in whatever needs to be put in, remove whatever needs to be removed, so that in all that we do, we give glory and honor to your name. In your name, amen. Hope everybody's doing well out there, loving the rain. We needed it. Uh, that will help my weeds grow very well uh, because my grass died weeks ago. Uh, so I don't know about you, but uh, just glad to have some rain. My garden sure appreciates it. And uh, man, I'm making all kinds of salsa this year. It's good stuff. Hope your summer's going well too. Starting to wind down. Kids started school this last week. So for a lot of you, uh, that schedule started to speed up a little bit as well. It sure did at, at our house. As we come to the uh, end of Genesis chapter 2, we've got a verse that we've seen probably before, and a lot of you have heard, uh, and a lot of people, they see this verse and they're like, oh, that's nice, that's a really nice verse, and, and it kind of is. Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And we, we tend to read that, and we go, oh, that, that's great, it's kind of a nice capstone to what has been an excellent story up to this point. God creates all things out of nothing, and he calls them good. He, he creates a garden, and he places the man whom he created out of the dirt in that garden. He breathes the breath of life into that man, and he comes alive, that he creates a woman, and now we have this divine relationship that is symbolic between Jesus and his church that comes from that. And so all is well. Things are in harmony. Things are good. We come to the end of the chapter, and we see that verse. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So for a lot of people, they read that and they go, hey, that's, that's really cool. I've never read it that way. I don't know if maybe it's just my skepticism uh, or whatever it is, but when I get to that verse, it seems ominous to me. I, I read it and, and that idea of, you know what? What goes up tends to go down, doesn't it? You know what I mean? That's just my skepticism. I, like, I read that verse and I'm like, well, there's really only one place for this one to go, it seems like. You know what I mean? Like the floor's about to drop out on this thing pretty quickly. And sure enough, only about one verse later uh, does that start to happen. And so up to this point, we've been talking about God's creation, understanding our identity and our purpose, who we are in Christ, trying to just set that foundation in a world that wants to challenge our identities and who we are and why we exist. We want to put that in firmly. But at this point, our story starts to turn. What God said was good is no longer going to be good from here. And so we're going to talk about what we call in Christian circles the fall. I'm going to spend the next two weeks on it. So this week will be part one. I'll continue on next week with part two on that to discover and understand what really did happen. Because it can be easy to just read past these verses and not see the subtleties in there. And there are a ton of subtleties we're going to see today. Now, for those who have been Christians for a while, how many of you know the devil works in subtlety? How many of you know he works in those whispers, in those quiet voices, telling lies into your ear, bending and twisting little things? Oftentimes, our journey, unfortunately, towards the fall isn't just one big thing necessarily. It can be a death by paper cuts. It's one little thing here. It's one little thing there. It's one little twist. 
It's one little diluting here or pretending here. And before you know it, how many of you know that a lot of little things eventually add up to a big thing over time? The devil works in subtle places, and we're going to watch that uh, unfold today a little bit. Now, a couple things before we get going, and a couple of these we've mentioned already, but just worth mentioning again. Number one, when uh, the story's talking about Adam, it's talking about the woman, uh, and it's talking about the Garden of Eden, these are real places. This is not a parable. This is uh, not a, a myth. According to the writers of Scripture, including Jesus who talked about Adam, these are real events. The Garden of Eden was a real place. Adam and Eve were real people. This is not a parable. This is a true story that really happened. The next thing, we don't really fully understand what the garden looked like. We, we know that the world before the flood was very different. Uh, different animals, different sizes. Uh, we know, for instance, even in the garden, the very little bit it tells us that, that water came up from the ground to, to water it. We know that God took walks in the cool of the day in the garden. Um, we know that there were very other, various other things that were different, including talking serpents in there, which is kind of odd because what we're going to see is uh, Eve has this conversation with a serpent, but at no time does she stop the conversation to go, hey, you're talking. You know what I mean? Like, it, it never struck her as odd that this animal was having a conversation with her. I, I, I remember the story of the three little pigs, and a, and a, and a, a, a preschool teacher was teaching a class of kids about the pr- three little pigs, and she said, one of the pigs walked up to the farmer who had straw and said, can I buy some straw from you? And she goes, do you know what that farmer said? And the kid raises his hand and goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. She goes, what? He said, holy cow, you're talking. You, <laughs> At no point did Eve ever think, it's kind of weird that this serpent's talking to me in the garden. Have you ever thought about that? There's serpents, there's angels, there's all sorts of things going on in that. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the serpent either. It just says it's a created being from the wild. And so we have to be quick. A lot of times people are like, well, the serpent is Satan. Not technically speaking. It is a created being. However, the Bible is full of stories of kings who have been influenced by Satan. Uh, We know that Jesus rebuked Peter at one time for being influenced by Satan, and we know that Satan entered Judas, for instance, from the biblical story. So while this serpent is a created being, it was influenced, but it is not technically correct to say it was Satan uh, in this story. I didn't have a number four, but when I was at Pleasant Hill, I came up with a number four, so you're welcome on that. (laughs) Number four is this. Uh, We don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. Uh, Just FYI for my theologians out there. Some say, oh, they were just in there a few hours. There are other theologians that say they could have been in there for decades, for all we know. The Bible doesn't say necessarily, so we need to be careful, and we're going to talk about adding to the Bible here in just a few minutes. But like I said, our story capstones with that great verse, you know, his wife are naked, they felt no shame, and only one verse later do things begin to change. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, what do we read? It says, he, the serpent, says to the woman, oh, and by the way, uh, for my theologians out there, um, I will call her Eve several times today because it's just habit, but her name actually, sorry, isn't Eve until after the fall. Up to this point, her name is woman, before she was taken from the man. But men, don't go home and call your wife that. That won't go well for you on that. Just FYI on that. He... The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree 
in the garden. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What's he up to right away? What's going on in this story? And, 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 and it's pretty clear he's putting a seed of doubt in Eve. Right away, he plants this seed of doubt. Did God actually say that? Are you sure you heard him correct, correctly? Did you interpret that properly? Are, are you sure you fully understand the instructions that he gave you? Well, the woman answers back to him, and this is where we start running into problems very quickly. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees. Now, I highlighted the for a reason. We'll get back to that here in just a moment. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. I've highlighted that as well. We'll get to that here in a second. Or you will, I put that blank in, blank die. She just says, or you will die. But I'll just go ahead and let you know she left a word out there. Remember, I said this is subtle. You can read these two verses and completely miss it, what's going on here. And one of the things is sometimes we live in a culture that doesn't think words matter. How you say them, what you say, whether you leave them in, whether you leave them out. But I'm going to go ahead and just let you in on a hint. When it comes to God's commands, his words matter. So what is going on here with Eve? Well, the first thing that we're going to notice is she diminishes God's word. Notice I highlighted the there. That's not actually what God said. We go back to Genesis 2.16, what it says is, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And you say, well, what's the difference? Are you you're just parsing words here, Jason? What's the difference? No, there's actually a difference here. See, by changing any to the, she reduces the glory and the generosity she's giving to God. I'll give you an example. It's, for instance, it's which would be more correct for me to say? If I looked at you and said, God forgives sins, we'd all nod our head. But if I look at you and say, God forgives all sins, which one gives God his full glory that he is due? Which one puts his generosity on display? Which one better explains who God is? He just forgives sins or he forgives all sins? Do your conversations and how you speak of God give him the glory he is due? Do you glorify him in all that you do? See, it's subtle, but Eve's already starting down a path by just taking away from the glory of God, by not being generous. And we live in a culture that tries to diminish God's word all the time. We want to bend it, we want to twist it, we want to make it say something it's not meant to say, redefine it, whatever it may be, we try to diminish God's word. 
Yeah, I'm known to go there, so I just will. You know what I mean? Right away, we go to Matthew, and Jesus says that we're supposed to avoid sexual immorality. And already our culture likes to go, well, really what he meant, Pastor Jason, I had someone tell me this recently, really what he meant was adultery. He was just talking about adultery there. When, he, when Jesus talks about sexual immorality, he says adultery. But here's the, here's the problem. In that same sentence, Jesus said adultery. And the Greeks had a perfectly good word for adultery, so that can't be what it was. The Greek word for, that Jesus uses here is porneo, which, oddly enough, is where we get our word pornography from. But we try to bend and twist it in our culture to say what we want it to say. We love to diminish the Bible. The question we have to ask when we choose to diminish the Bible is a, a tough one to swallow. Who gave you permission to do that? Who gave you permission? What's the second thing Eve did in that set of verses? She added to it. Eve added the words in there, remember, you must not touch it. But at no time did God ever say that. That wasn't his instructions to her. He never said, don't touch it. And again, you might be tempted to say, but that seems like a small thing. But is it? Do we have a right to add to the words of God? What does it say about us when we do? What does it say about God's words when we think that he needs our words to help him? Do you see the arrogance in that? Thank goodness God has me to add to his commands. I'll make them better. I'll help them out. Do we have the right to add to God's word, as if it's somehow incomplete. Again, you see the road Eve is walking down here? It's headed towards disaster. First she changes God's words, and now she's adding to his words. And by the way, two rules that I will always give you in reading the Bible to keep in mind. First one is this, don't add to it. And number two, let the Bible define the Bible. It doesn't need us. The Bible will do a very good job of defining itself and helping us understand what it is God's trying to say. It doesn't need our help. The third thing that she does, remember the blank line I had there between words at the end? She removes God's word. Again, seems small. But what God told Eve was, you will certainly die. Not, you will die. She took the word out. And you might be tempted to say, I still don't think it's a big deal. Well, let me show you this. It's such a big deal that her adversary, the serpent, repeats it back correctly to her. Look at this in Genesis 3, 4. You will not certainly die. That's the serpent saying that to her. He knew what God said. You will not certainly die. Which gets us to a really, really, really important point. Number one, there really is an enemy out there who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Number two, he knows the Bible better than you. You might want to be aware of that. The devil knows God's word. So much so, he corrected her. Matthew 4, if you want a great thing to read this week, Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. At one point, he's led up to the temple or one of the highest points. What does Satan do at that time? He quotes scripture to him. He misquotes it, but he quotes scripture, which again just shows you he knows the word of God. 
You've got to be careful of that. He'll bend it and he'll twist it, but he definitely knows it. And now we see he's lying to Eve when he says, you will not certainly die. And we have to say, what's going on with this? And at this point, what the serpent is doing is he's painting God in a different light. He's saying, God's not who you think he is. He doesn't behave the way you think he's going to behave. He's lying to you. He's holding you back. You won't certainly die, maybe figuratively. And by the way, God's God's telling you you'll die to hold you back. He's trying to put fear in you to keep you from really stepping into what he knows the truth is. It's really just a lie. You're not certainly going to die. And more and more again, you see Eve is walking into doubt, walking towards things she shouldn't be walking to. And so what happens next shouldn't surprise us. I'm going to skip a verse, but we'll come back to it. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, when the, women, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for the food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The food is physically appealing. It's aesthetically pleasing. It will give me something I'm missing. It'll fill a void I now believe that I have. What's going on here? She's now giving into her earthly desires. See, the New Testament throughout it says that we are worldly, that we are earthly, that we are of the flesh, that we live by our senses. All of those are descriptors of fallen humankind. See, in our fallen nature, we lose sight of heavenly things. When the Bible talks about living by the senses, what's it saying? It's saying that we, if it looks good, if it feels good, if it tastes good, if it sounds good, it must be good. And so we step into it. But the life of Christ is an invitation to a life of the Spirit. We are not called to be worldly-minded. We are called to be heavenly-minded. We are not called to live in the flesh. We are called to live in the Spirit. Eve here has now taken her eyes off of heaven. She's taken her eyes off of God, and now she is looking at the worldly pleasures in front of her. It is aesthetically pleasing. It's physically pleasing. It will give me something I don't have. She has now taken her eyes off of God. She is living by the flesh. Go ahead and satisfy your earthly desires. Because after all, don't I have a right to be happy? How many of you know that just about everybody in this country is on a happiness quest? How many of you know the Bible talks almost nothing of happiness? It talks about joy a lot. And there's a big difference between those two things. What happens when we only live by our senses? It looks good, feels good, tastes good, so it must be good, and we take our eyes off of God. Now we'll back up. What does the serpent promise? Same thing the serpent promises you. In verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And I want you to read this with me real quick. And I want it to be nice and loud like you've had six cups of coffee, okay? And you will be like God. Feel kind of dirty when you say that? Should. But you want to know what Satan was trying to promise them? You will be like God. 
You'll be equal with him. You can be just like him. What's our true desire, whether we like to admit it or not? We want to be like God. We want to make our own decisions, forge our own path, be king of our own little worlds. Our eyes will be opened. And and what's he saying? You'll be one of the enlightened ones. You know what I mean? You'll have that secret knowledge that God's been keeping from you, that he's been holding back from you, that that there's a hidden wisdom, a secret pathway. And you can be like God. Did you know that? You can be like God. And the problem is once we convince ourselves we can be like God, it is not a very big step to place ourselves above God. It's not a long journey at that point to get us to where we either see ourselves equal or above God. Why? Because I am now the standard. I'm the measuring stick. I'm calling the shots in this thing. How dare God not measure up to my standards? How dare he not think as I would think and do as I would do? What the serpent wants to convince you is this. God's holding you back. He's ripping you off and he's keeping you in a prison. That there is freedom outside of God. That there is a wisdom that he's hiding from you. That you can actually be equal with God. You should make the rules and you can have it your way. That's what the serpent is convincing us. In fact, I thought C.S. Lewis said it better than I ever could. And he says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, Poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, and slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So let's be clear what has happened here. Satan twists God's word. Eve decides to doubt God's word. She then revises God's word which leads her to abandon God's word. Did you catch that? Satan twists God's word. Eve begins to doubt God's word. She starts to revise God's word, ultimately abandoning God's word. It's a slippery slope that you can fall into. You see, the sin of the garden is control. People often ask, what's the sin of the garden? The sin of the garden is control. We say, I know what best to do with this piece of fruit. I'm calling the shots. I am master of my own domain. I am in control. My will, my way. That's the sin of the garden. And and how many of you know that we're all really just control freaks? We're all trying to massage and manipulate people and our circumstances in our lives to get our own desires. It's the sin of the garden. It started right there. I don't need anyone calling the shots in my life. I'm doing just fine on my own. My will. My way. That's the lure of sin and that's the false promise it makes that you can somehow find happiness and fulfillment without God. 
that's the road he's taking Eve down, and it's a lie. Because we know that the road of sin takes you to death and destruction. The Bible says that sin is lawlessness. It's living apart from God. I think most of us, we look out at the world. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one, but we look out at the world, and I don't naturally think, hey, this is probably the garden just as God intended. Turn the news on. Is your first thought like, yep, this is God's plan? No, I mean, we turn on, we're like, this is a rudderless ship heading towards the rocks. Good grief. We know what the cause of sin is. We live in that world. We see the anger, the hate, the oppression. The truth is, instead of worshiping God, we now worship self, if we're being honest. We worship self. Self-worth, self-confidence, self-control, self-righteousness, self-importance, self-indulgence. Pick yourself words. When we take our eyes off of God and heavenly things, we turn our eyes upon ourselves and we worship on the altar of me. That's the sin of the garden. And when we do that, we elevate self above the creator. And here's where it gets even more dangerous because we put our place in put ourselves in a place where only God belongs. And once this happens, and since we've placed ourselves above God, we begin to question God. We put him on the witness stand where we become the judge and we become the questioner. And we begin to ask God questions like, why is there evil in this world? How do you allow, allow injustice? How is it that you can heal one person but not another person? And why do you allow this to continue on? And at first time, we're like, well, those seem like reasonable questions, but can I, if we really get down to the evil here that's going on, we understand that we've put God in the witness stand, and we're questioning him. And the message is clear. God's not loving. He doesn't care. He doesn't meet my standard. I wouldn't do things that way. That's not the decision I would make. That's not how I'd done it. Do you see how subtle it is? When we put ourselves above God and we put him on trial, it's subtle. And so we've got to wrestle with a question. And if you take nothing away today, this is the question I want you to walk away with. This is the thing I need you to remember. Do we have the right to question God's commands? Do we? Do we have the right to question God's commands? Do we have the right to diminish them, to add to them, to subtract from God's word? You may have to wrestle with a deeper question is, do you take God's word seriously? I mean, Pastor Jason, don't I have the freedom to live any way I want? So I was wrestling with that. I was reminded of a story. Uh, many people know I lived uh, for like 10 years in Atlanta, uh, enduring the Atlanta traffic, and that's why I now live in Iowa. Uh, you can have it. Uh, but there's a stretch of highway on I-75 I used to drive by every single day. And what was amazing about it is on both sides of the median, there's literally 10 to 12 lanes. I mean, as far as the eye can see, it's just this sea of lanes on there. And at rush hour every day, it's packed bumper to bumper. 
I'd get caught in a lot. And I remember on one particular day, I, I just kind of that thought entered my mind. I'm like, I wonder how many cars are around me within like a, a hundred foot radius. I, I wonder how many cars that would be. And as I kind of did the math, I, I realized like there's literally about 100 to 150 cars in very close proximity to me. And we're all kind of doing 35 to 45 miles per hour. Now imagine at some point I decide, you know what? I think I'm just going to start changing lanes without any warning. I'm not going to look, and I really don't care. I'm just going to change lanes whenever I feel like it. What happens if I'm like, you know what? I don't think I want to do 35 anymore. I think I'd like to do 100. Or how about if I go, you know what? I think brakes are stupid. I'm going to just stop using my brake. What's going to happen? With that many people around me, surrounded by them, we're going to have a wreck. We're going to have destruction. I'm going to damage my vehicle, quite possibly damage myself, and even possibly hurt someone else as well. And see, that's the biggest problem with sin. We've talked about this. The biggest problem with sin isn't always just what it does to you. It certainly does evil, dark things to you. But we don't often stop long enough to wonder, what does my sin do to those around me? Your sin always affects those around you. Just like driving in traffic there. I can't, I can't decide to ignore the traffic laws and live any way I feel like living. And Satan will try to convince you and say, well, you know what? Those laws, they're just there to hold you back. They're there to keep you from becoming everything you want to become. They're stupid. But we got to stop long enough to say, wait a minute. I don't think that's why they're there. I think they're there to protect me, to protect others, and provide healthy boundaries so we don't all go bumping around to each other. And don't you know that's the story of the fall? When we allow sin in our lives, when we live selfishly, when we decide to control, when we decide to put ourselves above God, what happens? The story of humankind is clear. We all start bumping into each other. We're all just living any way we want. And it's destructive. What the serpent doesn't want you to know is this. True freedom has limits. It does. True freedom has limits. But the enemy wants to convince you God's commands are trying to restrict you and hold you back. And nothing could be further from the truth. His commands exist to protect us and to protect those around us. So every day we have choices to make. Do we obey God's commands and live or do we reject them and die? For those who have found themselves bumping into people and going down roads they wish they hadn't. And that's my story. I don't know about yours. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done a lot of things I wish I hadn't. But here's the good news. God's grace is bigger than any mistake I've ever made. Any bad decision I've ever done. God's grace and his mercy for those who step into it to say, I'm a sinner, here I am, Lord. Use me. His grace is available. For those who choose to say, I'm going to live by God's commands as a person of the kingdom, his arms are wide open saying, welcome home. For those who reject God, though, and choose to live their own way, the Bible only gives us two choices. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And right away, I get it, someone's out there going, all right, Pastor Jason, I don't believe in hell. 
I don't think a loving God would do that. It's not fair. And, and I, I sit and I go, time out, time out, time out. Stop. Do you see what you're doing? You don't even realize it. You just put God on trial. I wouldn't have a hell. I wouldn't do it that way. That's not how I would get it done. It's so subtle. We don't even realize how evil we are sometimes. You just placed yourself above God and said, you don't meet my standard. You see it? Do we have the right to question God's word? Got to wrestle with that this week. Because every day you're going to be faced with those questions. Will I obey God's commands in this next thing I do? Or am I going to do it my own way? And every time we do that, we take a bite out of that piece of fruit, just like Eve. You have another option. You can humble yourself. You can repent of your sins. You can stop playing God, surrender your life, and you can publicly declare your allegiance to him. Why? Because God is God, and you are not. Did you catch that? God is God, and you are not. Be careful how you use God's word. Let's pray.